they've given us a different lectern than the one that uh, we normally have, and it's a bit too low for me. So I'm going to use this one instead. Sorry to keep you waiting. Could you turn with me, please, back to Acts chapter 2? Acts chapter 2. And we're looking this week at verses 37 to 47. Now lead us in prayer. Let's pray. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us through your word. Please open our hearts to your word now, we pray. Um, speak to us. Uh, encourage us. Uh, and and, uh, and rebuke us, um, train us in righteousness, and do whatever you need to do uh, to our hearts uh, so that we love you and obey you more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometime last week there was a uh, story in the Star about the man who is about to become our new king. One of his school teachers was interviewed and spoke of how he was actually his pupil for quite some time before he realized that he was royal. And the teacher even told him off for doing his sums too slowly. But the prince, being humble and well brought up, accepted the rebuke graciously. It was only later that the teacher came to realize who he'd been dealing with. In a passage today, and the people of Israel were confronted with how they had treated the man who was truly to be their king. And they'd done a lot worse than the teacher. They had made an awful mistake. They'd done something terribly wrong and they, and they needed a fresh start. And today we're going to see how they were offered that fresh start with their king. But let me remind you where we're up to in the story. The uh, 12 apostles uh, with 120 followers of Jesus in Jerusalem uh, had been together on the day of Pentecost. And suddenly the things that Jesus had promised came true. The Holy Spirit was poured down upon them with a sound like a, a mighty rushing wind with tongues of fire that separated came to rest on each of them. And much of the amazement of the crowd that had gathered they began to speak of the oneness of God in, in other languages, languages they had never learned. And the Apostle Peter had stood up to address the crowd. He had shown from the prophecy of Joel in the Old Testament that, that this was what God had been promising from times past. The last days had arrived. The time of God's judgment was near. But those who call upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, would be saved. And then he spoke to them about the life of the Lord Jesus. Jesus had been accredited to them by God, the signs and wonders and miracles. They all knew he was special. But instead of listening to him, they plotted against him. They had him killed. And yet even that was not outside the plans and purposes of God. Jesus hadn't stayed dead. In fulfillment of prophecy, he had risen. His tomb, located just a few minutes away, was, was empty. 
And he had been seen very much alive by his apostles, who were his witnesses, his eyewitnesses, who would tell the world about Jesus and his resurrection. But he hadn't just risen from the dead and hung around. He had ascended up into heaven, exalted to the right hand of God, the the highest place in the universe. And having been exalted and given all authority and power, as God's king who reigns over all the world, he had poured out his spirit on his people. And so the phenomena that they were experiencing that day was the direct work of the risen, ascended Jesus. Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the King, the one that God had promised would rule Israel and the world. Rejected by Israel, but vindicated by God the Father. Now, Peter had been very blunt with them about this. You killed the Messiah, he said. But God raised him to life and made him Lord of all. But if this was true, if if Jesus was indeed Lord, remember what God the Father says to the Lord, David's Lord, in the Old Testament prophecy of Psalm 110? Go back to verse 34 of Acts 2 on page 771. That's where it's quoted. God the Lord says to David's Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Reign with me until those who hate you are so subjected that you're like a, like a stool for you to put your feet on. Until I bring judgment upon the nations and the people who will not accept your rule. Reign with me until I destroy those who oppose you. So, what would happen to Israel now? They've been waiting for the Messiah for hundreds of years, and when he finally came, they killed him. Handed over their Lord to be crucified. They now discover it was a terrible, terrible mistake. God had made him both Lord and Christ. And surely they are now in the deepest trouble. Well, listen to how they respond. Verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. They they were very distressed. They They knew what they were wrong. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? We've sinned. We've we've failed to submit to God's king. Instead, we had him killed. But what shall we do? Can we be forgiven? Well, there are several things that Peter could have said at that point. He could have said, well, no, I'm sorry. It's too late. There's nothing you can do. You had your chance. You should have started with Jesus, but you're going to kill him instead. So, my message is simply this. Prepare to face judgment. Or he could have said, what you did was really, really, really bad. So you really got to make it up to God. Right? From now on, work really hard at keeping God's law. And maybe if you do that for long enough, then you'll be okay. Right? But he doesn't do either of those things, does he? Because that's not the gospel Jesus gave him to preach. What does he say? Verse 38. Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, 
for the forgiveness of your sins. Friends, this is great news, isn't it? It's a message not of condemnation, but of hope. It's not what they deserve, but it's an incredible response of love. What they did was truly awful, but but they could be forgiven. God would give them a fresh start, another chance. And so Peter says, repent, change your minds. Realize that, that you've been going the wrong way, you've been treating Jesus the wrong way, and start again. And a sign of that fresh start, be baptized. Everyone in the culture of the day knew that that being baptized in someone's name meant being identified with a person. When the Jews went through the Red Sea, it was said that they were baptized into Moses. That as Moses became their leader, they identified with him. And so being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, that is King Jesus, you say, now I accept Jesus as my king. I recognize him. I submit to him as my king. I was wrong to think that he wasn't. I was wrong to live as if he wasn't. But now I want to start again with Jesus as my king. I want to be baptized in the name of King Jesus. And Peter said to the Israelites who rejected Jesus, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. Identify with him as your king. Change your mind. And God will forgive you. There are some people who think that the sins they have committed are so bad that God could never forgive them. Have you come across people like that? Maybe some of us here feel like that. You want to be forgiven when you're really sorry for what you've done. You're cut to the heart about it. And you've heard over and over again that Jesus died for you, that God will forgive you, but somehow or other you think you must be the exception right, because of what you've done. Well, friend, think again. These people had virtually murdered God's son. God had come in the flesh and they killed him. What could be worse than that? And yet, 50 days later, our loving and gracious God is holding out his gospel to them through his apostle Peter. And he says, I'm willing to forgive you. Trust in me. You can have another go. Friends, if God can forgive them, And he can forgive me and he can forgive you. For the very death of Jesus for which they were guilty was also the means of their forgiveness. And that same death of Jesus is the means for our forgiveness as well. For on the cross, Jesus took our place under God's condemnation so that we would never have to face it. He took the punishment that we deserve. So we can be forgiven, no matter what we've done. But it wasn't just forgiveness that God was offering Israel that day. He wasn't just saying, okay, I'll forgive you for killing my son, my king. Let's pretend it didn't happen, and you can go back to being my Old Testament people. No, no, no. God was offering them something even better than forgiveness. He would make them part of the new covenant, the new way of relating to God based on his promises through Jesus. And in the new covenant, the prophet said that not only would there be forgiveness of sins, but the pouring out of God's Spirit. God's Spirit will be given to all who belong to him to to incline their hearts to obey. 
And so Peter announced to the crowd, not only would they be forgiven, verse 38, but they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God would come to live in them and change their hearts. They would once again be his people. And God himself would be with them and be their God. What an offer. Forgiveness of sins. The Holy Spirit. Being part of God's people. An incredibly generous offer of a fresh start and a new life. And friends, the offer that the Apostle Peter, or that God made through the Apostle Peter, on that day, is the offer that he still makes today. Because the offer wasn't simply for those who were back there. Peter himself says in verse 38, he says, verse 39 rather, he says, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. I wonder if Peter could see the full significance of what he said that day. How that promise of forgiveness in the Holy Spirit was given not just to the Israelites of their day and their descendants, but, but people like you and me, who are far off, far away, different time. And yet the promise is for us, and to all whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Has the Lord called you? Have you heard the gospel word? The word of promise that you can be forgiven, that you can receive the Holy Spirit, that you can have a fresh start. If you turn to the Lord Jesus, you can. That's the promise. There are some people who hear about this, this amazing offer and, and even believe it's true, but, but don't actually take the plunge. It's like when I go swimming, I put my foot into the pool. I feel oh, it's a bit cold, isn't it? So I just stand there, and then maybe a bit later on I might sit at the edge of the pool and put my feet in. And then someone, usually my daughter, urges me, to, come on in, come on in, Eric. <laughs> okay. And I summon all my courage and bravely take the plunge and jump all the way in. And, and for the first few seconds I'm freezing. It takes me a long time to get to this point, by the way. And for the first few seconds I'm freezing. Right? But I swim and swim until I'm not cold anymore, and then I don't want to get out because it's cold on the outside. Eh? Are you like that? Are you someone who needs to be begged or persuaded? Are you one of those people who know it's true, but then the inertia sets in, you're hesitant and you don't want to plunge and, and you're danger of putting it off if you don't do anything about it? Well, I suspect there would have been people in Peter's crowd who were a bit like that. But Peter wasn't shy about urging them and begging them. He says, verse 40, he says, With many words he warned them and he pleaded with them. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. See, the people of Israel, they were heading towards God's judgment for the way they treated his son. They were in terrible danger. And Peter had to warn them. He earnestly begged them to, to save themselves from their crooked generation. They were heading for disaster. But there was a way of escape, a, a fresh start to be had. And so he urged them with all his might, please take it. Plunge in. Take God's offer while it's still valid. And friends, we too are in terrible danger, aren't we? Because like the people of Israel in Peter's day, we haven't submitted to the rightful king of our lives. 
we've followed other gods, or worse, we've made ourselves out to be gods. And we too are in danger of God's judgment. Our human race is heading for disaster. And as Peter warned his hearers, then, let me warn you. Let me plead with you. Let me beg you. Save yourself from this corrupt generation. We are heading for catastrophe when God comes to judge the world. We're heading for condemnation when, when Jesus returns as king. But there is a way of escape. For the promise of the Holy Spirit and forgiveness and a fresh start is available to all whom the Lord our God will call to him. So come to Jesus, trust in him, identify with him and you'll be forgiven and saved. Well, how did Israel respond to this word of grace? We see in uh, verse 41 that there were 3,000 people who heard this message and welcomed it. 3,000 who had been realizing that, who realized that they'd been going the wrong way, and asked God to give them a fresh start. They said yes to Jesus, and accepted the forgiveness that he offered. And that very day they put their faith in Jesus, inwardly in their hearts, they expressed it outwardly, by identifying with him in baptism. So verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So what did God do for those 3,000? I'm sure he poured out his spirit upon them, didn't he? As Peter had promised. Although there's, there's no record of the kind of phenomena that the apostles experienced at first. In fact, the next time where we see the phenomena kick in is when the next um, phase of God's plan kicks in. That is, the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. Again, again via Peter in the, in the story of Cornelius. So how do we see the spirit in action in the lives of the crowds? Well, we see in what he led them to do. He gave them a fresh life. And he enabled them to live it. Verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. These are the three things that they made their priority. And they kept on their priority in their fresh life. Have a look at them again with me in verse 42. The apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and what should be translated, and the prayers. Now, you might be saying, hang on, Andrew, you can't count, can you? Right? Uh, there are four things here, not three. Um, that's, that's right. Yeah? Um, the way the NIV has punctuated it, it looks like there are four things. Uh, some people think there are four things, but I think there's actually three on the list. Um, and, you see, the, the <laughs> I'll try to explain what I mean, okay? Uh, the Greek case that means to, um, or with, or in, are all the same thing. Okay, to, within, is interchangeable. Right? And, and the word and there is accurately preserved in the NIV. Uh, so you, you, so you, you can see where, where it is. Uh, and, and the word and shows a new topics in view. So if you look carefully at the verse, uh, verse uh, 42, it says, They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship to within the breaking of bread and to the press. Right, so 
dividing up into the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, which is expressed in the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Because it's not the breaking of bread that's itself that's important, it's the fellowship that, that's, that's expressed in the breaking of bread. Right? So here are the three things that characterizes the life of the early church. And the three things that should be the center of our lives together as well. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship in the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And we'll have a look at each of them in turn. The first thing is, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were taught the truth about Jesus by the apostles of Jesus. The apostles of Jesus are the ones who were sent by Jesus. Uh, They are eyewitnesses of him. Uh, He appointed them personally. Uh, And doubtless there would be much to learn from them. There were many things about Jesus' life and ministry that they would learn from these eyewitnesses. They were, uh, uh, the apostles would teach them, uh, the people, what Jesus taught them. And all his private teaching was now to be made public. And the Old Testament was to be opened up so that people could see how it points to Jesus and so be confident in their faith in him. And so the apostles were doing all these things. They were authorized by Jesus to be his representatives in the world. And their ministry was authenticated by him. Verse 43 says that, Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. See, the apostles were going around doing these signs and wonders, the things that that Jesus himself was doing. And their teaching was being authenticated by Jesus. And so the believers in Jerusalem were devoting themselves, they were dedicating themselves to the apostles' teachings. And so it is with us as well, isn't it? We need to be a people who are devoted to the apostles' teachings were planted on the firm foundation of their message. We don't have apostles today, but we have their teaching. And it's right here in the New Testament. And what we do today is we continue to devote ourselves to the apostles' teachings. As we we read the Bible. We read it by ourselves. We read it with two or three others. We join in small groups and cell groups and correspondence courses. We hear it explained, expounded in our Sunday gatherings. Like the first Christians... We want to keep on listening to what the apostles have to say. So that's the first thing we want to emphasize here at SMAC. Devoted ourselves to the apostles' teaching. The second thing that they're devoted to was what Luke calls the fellowship. Uh, The Greek word for this is koinonia. You may remember we came across it uh, earlier this year when we were looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians and the partnership that he had with the Philippians. Because the word the word is the word for fellowship, partnership. It's like a word from the commercial sector. Like if there's like a partnership in a business, you know, when two people get together, they pull their resources and, and do business together. It's, it's a sharing, participation, a, a communion, an association. Then the early believers devoted themselves to the partnership, the fellowship they had together. That was primarily expressed as they broke bread together. Other expressions of it too are mentioned here. This. There's the sharing of possessions in verse 44, where it says, All believers were together and had everything in common. Wow. Now, it doesn't mean it was like communism, right? It doesn't mean they had to liquidate all your assets before you joined the church. And we know that from what Peter said to Ananias later on, and we'll come to that eventually. It wasn't like they just had a common purse, and everyone's got the same bank account, or everyone uses the the church corporate credit card, and then, you know, everyone's got to pay it off together at the end of the the month or something like that, It's more about a generosity in their attitude to each other. And so we read in verse, in verse 45, it says, Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. It was one of them was, was, was really in trouble. They would, would happily sell 
what they had to provide for him. That's, that's the extent that they were bound together in fellowship. Whether or not it was an ad hoc thing to start with, we don't know, but we know that at least by the time we get to chapter 4, they, they were organized about it. Now, if you go just on the other side of the page, in chapter 4, verse, verse 32 to 34, we, we see the details about how they did this. It said, all the believers were uh, in one heart and mind. On the right-hand column of page 773, verse 32, no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything. Uh, and how did it work? Verse 34, there was no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the monies from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. So it seems like the apostles had a fund. Right? People were incredibly generous in selling things and contributing to the fund, and then it's distributed to those who have need. And so there's no needy person among them. The poor were provided for in an, in an orderly and, and controlled way. Now, friends, what's our fellowship like in this regard? Are we generous with each other? We look out for each other's good? If we're in partnership with each other, then, then part of our fellowship is financial. Now, the way we've organized ourselves at uh, St. Mary's Cathedral is that a proportion of what we put in that brown box goes to the budget of our Cathedral Social Concerns Committee. And then when we receive requests for help, the Social Concerns Committee looks into it, and if there's a genuine need, they, they seek to meet it with the funds that we've joined together in contributing. That's, that's, that's the kind of way we, we, we organize that. Right? Sometimes, as a community, or even as individuals, we have to lovingly say no to some requests. And not because we're stingy, right, but for the, for the long-term good. Uh, and you see examples of that in the Thessalonian letters, where Paul clearly says that those who are lazy and won't work, then they shouldn't be supported by other people in the church. Right? So there's all kinds of situations when the right thing is not to give, but what we're shown here is that we mustn't have selfish attitudes. We need to, to see each other as partners together in these things, so devoted to the fellowship. And so we love and we support and we care for each other in all kinds of ways, including, where necessary and reasonable, the financial. The second way the believers showed their commitment to the fellowship was, was in meeting together. Verse 46 tells us they met in two places. Uh, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. That's the first place. And they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, which is the second place. I doubt that they were in the temple, that everyone was in the temple courts every day. Okay? I suspect that they had other things to do as well. But every day there were Christians there, gathered in the courts of the temple. And what they did was to listen to the apostles' teaching. Uh, we'll see that later on when we read in Acts. The apostles were there teaching the people. And every day they gathered in homes. They were committed to the meeting together. Brothers and sisters, we must be committed to that as well. We meet together on Sundays. We meet in the week in smaller groups. We've got to keep doing that. We must be committed to the gathering. But can I remind us that that our meeting together with God's people, at least on Sundays, should be way up the top of our list of priorities. Right? Previous generations of Christians wouldn't have dreamed of coming to church once or twice a month. Right? Somehow rather in our generation, that tends to be rather common. Church on a Sunday shouldn't be an option that we can take or leave. Uh, it's a commitment that we keep, unless there's a very good reason not to. Now, you know, I know people in our, in our congregation who've 
fantastic. They've, they've refused jobs with bigger salaries and all that kind of stuff so that they can make sure that they're, that they're not working on Sundays. I commend that. encourage you in that. And of course, there are sometimes good reasons why people can't come to church on Sunday. And I don't deny that. There will be times when we have to miss a week here or there. You know, and there are good reasons for it. Sometimes people can't come at all because they're ill or something like that. You know? And if that happens, then the church should come to them, shouldn't it? But for most of us, most of the time, that's not the case. Uh, church on Sunday shouldn't be seen as an optional thing. We never ask ourselves, shall I eat today or not? All right? it's, unless there are very unusual circumstances which cause us to have to make a decision about it. Occasionally there will be. But it's not a good question for just a generally healthy human being. If we have a job, we don't get up on Monday morning, and go, shall I go to work today? Yeah? Of course we've got to go to work. Don't, we don't ask that question unless we're sick. Right? In the same way, we, we don't ask, shall I go to church this Sunday? But except in extraordinary circumstances. Right? That's the, uh, it's, there's no question about it. We've got to be there. Someone asks us to play golf on Wednesday morning, we say, sorry, we're at work. Right? Someone asks us to play golf on Sunday morning, sorry, I'm in church. Right? Because meeting God's, priority, meeting God's people is our priority. Straighten the diary. Okay? Now, I know I'm picking to the converted here, because you're here, aren't you? All right? uh, but let me just uh, remind us of that. Now, we saw before that the, the early church uh, expressed their fellowship together uh, most clearly in the breaking of bread, with sharing a meal together. Because the sharing of the meal is a sign of, of sharing together in the gospel of Christ. Uh, Luke describes that. We, we read just now in verse 46 how they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now, this may have been the Lord's Supper um, that they shared together in their homes, uh, or it may just be a normal meal which they shared when they gathered together. Yeah. If it was the Lord's Supper, it would still be in the context of a meal in someone's home. Uh, after all, the Lord's Supper in the, in the early church was, in fact, a fellowship meal. It was a proper meal, not just a bit of bread and a sip of wine. That's a, the context of a proper meal. Uh, and during the meal, when they broke bread and, and when they drank the wine, they'd remember Jesus' death on their behalf and express their fellowship in that death by, by eating and drinking together. But even if they weren't consciously participating in the Lord's Supper, they, they were still expressing their fellowship together around a meal. Right? And that's, a, that's an important thing. At the end of verse 46, that tells us that um, they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Their fellowship was full of joy, exuberant joy. And they did it with sincerity of heart, not, not tricking or double-guessing or playing games with each other. Uh, they ate together with simplicity and humility and sincerity, praising God for, for the relationships that he had given them. It was the fellowship they enjoyed. They liked being together around the table. Meals today seem to have less significance than they did back then, but they're still significant. Now, we still enjoy having the Lord's Supper every second week here at church, and and though tradition has somewhat diminished the quantities of bread and wine we consume, we, we still eat and drink together as an expression of, of our partnership in the gospel. And we still have our fellowship meals together. We invite each other over to each other's homes or out to the stalls to, to eat together. 
that we try and have lunch or dinner together after church here at least once a month. And we eat together at Smack Team. That's not the unspiritual part of the exercise. It's, it's part of expressing our fellowship. Let's keep doing it in gladness and sincerity. Let's keep praising God for giving us each other. Right? Families eat together. And as a family, as, as God's family in this place, we eat together as an expression of our unity. Now this kind of fellowship, this kind of love for each other, it's actually pretty attractive, you know. People on the outside could see how the Christians love each other. And so the beginning of verse 47 um, says that uh, they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. So even those who weren't part of it could, could see how appealing it was. Persecution would eventually come in, in God's time, but, but not at that point. They couldn't hide the, the authentic Christian community. It was great to be part of. And even the outsiders knew that. Well, the final thing that they were devoted to is, is prayer, or perhaps we should or actually better read the, the prayers. Right? Um, this, may refer to, this may refer to the regular prayer times at the temple. Um, the first verse of chapter 3 tells us the apostles went to the temple for their prayer times. Or it may refer to prayer meetings held in people's homes. There are many examples of those in, in Acts as well. And while I'm sure that they prayed individually, the fact that Luke says they devoted themselves to the prayers showed that the early church made it a priority to pray together. And so when they met together, they ate together, and they prayed together. Because they were a people who were dependent on God. And friends, as a people, we too need to be a people of prayer. We should be devoted to the prayers because we are devoted to the God to whom we pray. Of course, we can pray by ourselves at home and some of us meet up in pairs to read and pray, but we must also be devoted to the prayers in our meeting together on Sunday as a congregation or when we meet in subgroups. Uh, and we have more time to pray in SMAC team because we've got more time in SMAC team. We try and make prayer a, a bigger part of our time together there. But we need to be a people of prayer, because we know that, that we can't do anything of spiritual worth in and of ourselves. Can we really? It's only as God works that significant things happen. It's only the Holy Spirit who can draw people to Jesus. We can't make people believe. We certainly can't change people's hearts to make them love God. And so if we're going to be any use at all, we need to be constantly asking God to be at work among us. The early church was devoted to prayer. And God heard their prayers. The end of verse 47 tells us that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so day by day, more and more people responded to the message that Peter had proclaimed. More and more people took that plunge and received Jesus as king. More and more people were forgiven and received the Holy Spirit. Now, at that stage, all the people who were coming in were still Jews. Because God was giving a fresh start, not just to individuals, but to his people as a whole. He was regathering Israel under his king as, 
as many, many Jews came to trust in their Messiah. And so here was the nucleus of the new people of God. The people who were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship in the breaking of bread, and to the press. Here was Israel being given a fresh start in this new community. But let me remind us that the fresh start that God was offering was not just for Israel of old. Remember how Peter said that the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. So if you're someone here today who needs a fresh start, why not ask God for it today? You haven't yet turned to Jesus as your king? Why not do it today? If you've been dipping your toes in the water, sitting by the edge of the pool, then friends, time to jump in. Take the plunge, it's worth it. If you're worried about what happens if you do, then let me warn you, it'll be far worse if you don't. But tell Jesus you want him to be your king. Ask him to forgive you, to give you his spirit, give you a fresh start. That's the reality. Then come and talk to me later about getting baptized as a sign of that fresh light that you have in him. And be part of the community of God's people. Community devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowship in the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Let's pray. Let's just take a few moments of uh, silence to reflect on um, God's Word today. Let's, uh, those who want to use this time to receive the forgiveness that God offers in Jesus, to ask Him to be their King, then you please go ahead and do that. Father, we thank you so much for the first star that you've given us in Jesus. Thank you for the forgiveness, even though we've sinned against you. And thank you for the Holy Spirit, who enables us to trust in you and changes our hearts. And thank you for making us part of your, your new people for bringing us into that that community. Father, we pray for us here as as a church. We pray that you help us to live out that new life together. May we be a people who are devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship in the breaking of bread, and the prayers. who regularly and humbly listen to you, who lovingly care for each other, and who dependently call upon you to be at work among us. And Father, would you please be adding to us those whom you are saving and calling to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.